This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Welcome to the Buy Size Business Breakfast, the best bits from Wednesday, February the 8th, where we're going to be talking to Kurt Mermill. Give me the correct title on this one. It was quite an interesting one. Everyday AI Strategic Advisor for Data IQ. He joined us live on the line from Paris a little earlier on today to talk about uh, all things chat GPT. Uh, Google launching its artificial intelligence or AA-powered chatbot called BARD. Uh, to rival the ChatGPT network that was also explained in more detail uh, by rivals Microsoft overnight as well. So we've got something of a a smart bot, a chatbot wars developing at the moment. We wanted to get Kurt's take on this. We were also joined by Atish Thapa, the head of business and marketing at ClearTrip, uh, was live in studio talking about bookings and pre-bookings, specifically for the Eid period. Um, search volumes and active user numbers are above their pre-pandemic levels at the moment. So travel demand is clearly back at the moment. What does that mean for Eid breaks? What does that mean for summer holidays and further afield? Uh, we also had Lisa Maroud join us live in studio. Lisa is the associate in Klein & Co's employment department. So a legal take on a legal story. Uh, Emirati workers uh, are seeing, or companies I should say, are seeing a fresh deadline to hire Emirati workers by. Government looking to increase compliance with its flagship jobs policy at the moment, in line with the emiratization visions here in the region. Private sector companies uh, have been given a new date by which time to comply. We want to hear from Lisa as to the reasoning behind the date, but also uh, what it meant for companies looking to reach and achieve those targets. Plus, plenty of chat in the studio, a lot of chat around what was going on over in the United States. It was the State of Union address. Uh, President Biden was on his feet for almost an hour uh, talking to Senate. That gave us plenty uh, of chat because there was also the response from the Republicans to the Democrat address. And Serena was on hand to join us live in studio to give us all the latest news headlines. Plus, of course, Uh, details on what is the biggest story at the moment, uh, the harrowing effect of the earthquakes in both Turkey and Syria, a developing story all the time. And Serena kept us up to date with the latest developments. So the World Health Organization is predicting 23 million people have been affected. You've got nearly 6,000 buildings that have been destroyed and more than 7,800 people have died following those devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Uh, Search and rescue teams continuing to sort through the rubble for survivors. Uh, Khaled Hubeiti is from the Syrian Arab Red Crescent and he's been explaining what issues they're facing. We need heavy equipment, ambulances and fire firefighting vehicles. We don't have firefighting vehicles to put out fires. We don't have heavy equipment to conduct rescue operations. There are a lot of issues surfacing now due to the sanctions. Now, also, those rescue operations are being hampered by weather conditions. You've got temperatures that are expected to fall to minus five degrees Celsius. And of course, 
raising concerns for those that may still be trapped under rubble. Uh, President Erdogan declared a three-month state of emergency in Turkey on Tuesday. Ten cities in the south of the country have been declared disaster zones. And of course, as you said, Tom, that death toll expected to keep rising. Um, International search and rescue efforts arriving in the country. There has been reports of press on the ground getting voice notes from people trapped under the rubble and trying to share their live location. Uh, Verdant Tosman lives in the city of Osmani. Uh, he's losing hope of finding his missing brother. I don't think he's alive. I think his chances are about one in a thousand. We are waiting, but the damage is really bad. Now, aid, of course, pouring in. More than 70 countries have offered to help. Uh, Two UAE planes carrying humanitarian aid have arrived at Damascus Airport already to help those affected. It's all part of that gallant night two operation directed by the UAE president, His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zadan Ahyan. So a total of 12 tonnes of essential supplies and tents, uh, part of that initial aid allotment or package that arrived in Syria. You can see video footage of that on our Instagram page, the Aaron News Centre. And meanwhile, in another move of support... The UA president has ordered 100 million US dollars in aid for those affected in Syria and Turkey. So it's going to be split evenly, 50 million to support Turkey and the rest 50 million to support those in Syria. Um, And of course, you've got uh, the EU. They've mobilized more than 30 search and rescue medical teams to send in Turkey. But just to give you a bit of a heads up, UAE humanitarian and charitable organizations here are going to directly collect donations this weekend. So it's called the Bridges of Good campaign. They're going to assist with gathering and assembling relief supplies. It is the Emirates Red Crescent authorities working with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation, also the Ministry of Community Development. Uh, Packaging of initial aid is going to start February 11th at the Abu Dhabi National Exhibition Centre, ADNEC and the Dubai Exhibition Centre at Expo City Dubai. So if you are interested in contributing to the campaign, you can register through the official channel, the official website, volunteers.ae. Obviously, that is a well-known organisation that has been running uh, for for a long time here in the UAE. Uh, A fast developing and moving story at the moment. ARN News team all over it. If people want to stay up to date with the latest updates. Just stay across our socials or check out the ARN News Centre app. Cheers, Serena. Thank you for that. Let's turn our attention to the US where we are uh, getting our heads around what's been said in the State of Union address. Uh, That took place a little earlier on this morning. In fact, it's just come to a conclusion. So we're getting the latest there. Um, Before that, we had the Fed Reserve Chairman, Jerome Powell, talking about disinflation. Explain this one to me, please, Dini. Still inflation, but just not quite as fast. So deflation is when prices are falling. Disinflation is when prices are still rising, but not quite as fast as they were last week. Let's let Jay Powell explain. The disinflationary process, the process of getting inflation down, has begun, and it's begun in the goods sector, which is about a quarter of our economy. But it has a long way to go. These are the very early stages of disinflation. So the services sector really, except for housing services, uh, is not really showing any any disinflation yet. So our message really was this process is likely to take quite a bit of time. Uh, It's not going to be, uh, we don't think, smooth. It's probably going to be bumpy. 
Daniel Richards has also been giving his thoughts on those statements. Daniel Richards, senior economist, Emirates MBD. Fed Chair Jerome Powell was speaking in Washington last night where he warned that interest rates would still have to be raised to a higher level than currently anticipated by markets and that it would probably take a significant period of time to bring down inflation given the extraordinarily strong labour market data seen in the NFP report last week. Nevertheless, Powell did predict that inflation would slow this year, and given that he did not push back as aggressively as some feared, it was read as a relatively dovish message from some investors in the equity markets in particular. That being said, Powell and other Fed officials, including Neil Kashkari yesterday, have been adamant for some time now that there will still need to be more rate hikes than the markets currently expect. Now, given our currency peg of a dollar, that almost certainly means further rate hikes here in the UAE as well. So potentially a bit more pain to come for those with mortgages, etc. Unemployment and inflation both featuring heavily in Biden's speech this morning. Here's him on unemployment. We're not finished yet by any stretch of the imagination, but unemployment rate is at 3.4%, a 50-year low. Near record unemployment for black and Hispanic workers. We've already created, your help, 800,000 good paying manufacturing jobs. The fastest growth in 40 years. Inflation? Inflation has been a global problem because the pandemic disrupted our supply chains and Putin's unfair and brutal war in Ukraine disrupted energy supplies as well as food supplies, blocking all that grain in Ukraine. But we're better positioned than any country on earth right now. But we have more to do. But here at home, inflation is coming down. Here at home, gas prices are down $1.50 from their peak. Food inflation is coming down. Not fast enough, but coming down. Inflation has fallen every month for the last six months. Our take-home pay has gone up. And here's Dan Richards' take on the speech. President Joe Biden is currently in the midst of his annual State of the Union address in which he's already talked up the strong labour market with the 12 million jobs created under his presidency and also disparaged the rapid rise in national debt under the previous administration. This is both, of course, we're somewhat glossing over the pandemic crisis with many of those jobs gains coming back following the layoffs seen during that period And while there could be certainly valid criticisms of the previous administration, much of that run-up in debt was arguably also made through that extraordinary pandemic period. Nevertheless, with unemployment at an over 50-year low, or this might not be so much so good for prospect of rate cuts anytime soon, the labour market has certainly been performing well. On the debt front, Biden called heavily for cross-party cooperation, which is going to be especially important as the debt ceiling issue will rear its head once more pretty soon. The president has also called for wealthy individuals and corporations to do their fair share in paying taxes in order to fund the energy transition, saying it was unfair that billionaires should pay a lower rate of tax than teachers, for example. Democrats done then, Brandy. What about the Republican response? This is the thing. You get to have almost a right of reply. You get to take a, a shot. Um, at some of the claims in the speech. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is now governor of Arkansas, and she was the one who was tasked with delivering the Republican response to that State of the Union speech. Being a mom to three young children taught me not to believe every story I hear. So forgive me for not believing much of anything I heard tonight from President Biden. From out-of-control inflation and violent crime to the dangerous border crisis and threat from China. Biden and the Democrats have failed you. 
they know it and you know it. And it's time for a change. You know what? She went and done it. She only went and done it. She played the age card. I'll be the first to admit, President Biden and I don't have a lot in common. I'm for freedom. He's for government control. At 40, I'm the youngest governor in the country. And at 80, he's the oldest president in American history. I'm the first woman to lead my state. And he's the first man to surrender his presidency to a woke mob that can't even tell you what a woman is. Ooh. She's so young, she did it on Zoom. <laughs> she was 39 when she took over the gubernatorial office in Arkansas. And of course, we all know her well because she was Donald Trump's press secretary mm -hmm. for a couple of years. And we know her dad, Mike Huckabee, because he was a... It wasn't a presidential candidate, but he was a Republican nominee for the presidential candidate a couple of times. So she's from a political family. Do you think that if the genders were reversed and it was a male spokesperson saying, I'm 40, she's 80, how do you think that would have gone down? Ooh. You make a valid point. Short answer, not well. If it was Hillary. Yeah. And uh, that when that was, yeah. You're right. So pop a billionaires and also he couldn't resist a pop at a certain Donald Trump. The American deficit went up four years in a row. Because those record deficits, no president added more to the national debt in any four years than my predecessor. Nearly 25% of the entire national debt that took over 200 years to accumulate was added by just one administration alone, the last one. They're the facts. Check it out. Check it out. So, Donald Trump has responded. Uh, <laughs> even though he holds no official office at the moment, the official response from the Republicans was from Sarah Huckabee Saunders, the governor of Arkansas. We'll hear from her a little bit later on. But Trump has been on social media. He released a video message recorded before President Joe Biden's State of the Union address, and this is what Trump had to say. Here's the real State of the Union. Over the past two years under Biden, millions and millions of illegal aliens from 160 different countries have stormed across our southern border. Drug cartels are now raking in billions of dollars. He went on to talk about the administrative shortfalls of Biden. Biden and the radical Democrats have wasted trillions of dollars and caused the worst inflation in half a century. Real wages are down 21 months in a row. Gas prices have soared and are now going up much higher than even before. And the typical American family is paying $2,200 in increased energy and food costs each year. Joe Biden's weaponized Justice Department, and I'm a victim of it, is persecuting his political opponents. Gas prices are bound about $1.50, although they are still um, higher than they were. I'm having a look at a CNN flash poll um, where they message people. They text message people and say, what did you think of it? Yay or nay? 72% um, um, felt positively towards the uh, speech. They normally get in this poll, by the way, a vastly positive reaction because the people who tend to watch the speech tend to be, you get a friendly audience for the State of the Union. You're not necessarily going to sit through it if you are on the fence or slightly on the other side. You have to be quite a long way away. What was interestingly was that where they asked people on the scale of positivity, it did worse than usual when it came to people reacting 
very positively. Only 34% were very positive about the speech. I've got one observation on it. And like you, Brandy, it's rare for me to be defending Donald Trump, but I'm going to on this occasion. So Joe Biden, on the one hand, is, hey, 12 million jobs under my administration, but then criticising the Trump administration for increasing the deficit. I would argue that a large reason for those 12 million jobs that were created during the Biden administration was the stimulus that was started by the Trump administration because there's a lag with these things. It's not a perfect one-on-one causation correlation thing, but I do think the Biden administration got a big jobs bump because of the money that the Trump administration spent. I'm not sure if it's a direct relation to the stimulus, but I think you're absolutely right when you say you have to put the numbers in context. Yes, you've created uh, all of these jobs, but from a really low base because of the COVID layoffs that happened. And when you're talking about the deficit and Donald Trump, yes, he cut taxes, but he also, as you say, had to pay out a huge amount of money to keep the economy ticking over. There was a massive amount of COVID stimulus. Every government in the world pretty much did the same. It's what you do. It's absolutely what you do in a time of crisis. So, yeah, there's, there's context, isn't there? Only Trump put his signature on the checks. True. The only observation I had, and am I alone in this one, he's possibly the most mimicked voice in the world now. Do you listen to Donald Trump and go... Is that actually him or is that just someone trying to be... And is Donald Trump actually now trumping himself by... Because the, the whole millions and millions and billions and billions he was coming up with there, I was like, come on, Donald, you're actually playing the game a bit longer. We're going to play one more little clip of him just to go to the uh, latest news headlines that is coming your way in a few moments' time. This is Trump. One more time, just his response. I am running for president to end the destruction of our country and to complete the unfinished business of making America great again. We will make our country better than ever before, and we will always put America first. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We were looking at one of our top headlines this morning. The private sector given new six-monthly deadlines to hit amortization targets. Very pleased to be joined by Lisa Marot, who is an associate at the law firm Clyde & Co's Employment Department. Lisa, it's lovely to see you again. Good morning. Good to see you too. Let's look first at what's changed. What deadlines do companies now need to hit? Yeah, so the ministry announced yesterday um, that um, instead of looking at the end of each year to assess whether you have achieved your amortization targets and to see whether you achieved the new 2% quota increase year by year, they are now going to assess companies at the end of June to see whether they um, achieved a 1% increase in the first half of the year. And then they're basically doing a second assessment by the end of December to see whether you achieved another 1% in the second half of the year. What do we know about why this has changed? Well, I do think that the reason behind it is to give companies a bit more flexibility because before you had to achieve the 2% from January of the respective year. So when you were, for example, not compliant in January, you couldn't hit the 2% increase, you didn't have it in Feb, you already accrued fines in all of of these months. And even if you achieved maybe 1%, it wasn't enough, you will still get fined um, for being below the quota. Now, by giving companies by basically splitting the year and giving companies six months time to achieve 1%, 
for many companies, it will be easier to do that, be compliant for the first half of the year, avoid any fines and then reassess in the second half of the year and hire new stuff. Given that the numbers, the quotas in general are compounding, the percentage you need to hit next year takes into account the extra staff that you have hired the year before. Is the end result the same with this 1% plus 1%? Um, as it would have been if it was just an end-of-year target. Yeah, so at the moment, this is a point where we don't have 100% clarity because whilst the ministry gave this press release and I believe also the press conference to give the updates, we haven't seen the actual underlying amendment to the resolution yet. So there are two ways how it can go. Either they are assessing the 2% quota at the beginning of the year based on your overall skilled workers and you have six months to achieve the first percent and another six months to achieve the second percent. Or the other way they could do it is they calculate the 1% quota in January. You have until June to achieve that. And then they could basically give you um, the, the, the second half year target at the beginning of July or at the end of June, what would then mean that probably they will take the um, um, the increased headcount into uh, into account that you have achieved during the first half of the year, meaning you actually have to hire more Emiratis. But we don't know yet. We don't know yet for sure. What does it mean for fines? Does it mean potentially that companies could be fined twice in a year? This is actually what it means. So the ministry has confirmed that instead of applying the fines for the previous year in January of the next year, what they will do is they will be assessing fines um, at the end of June. So basically the first batch of the fine will be imposed in July. And then they're assessing again in December, imposing the second part of the fines in January of the following year. So you're actually fined twice. But for those who accumulated fines that they discovered at the beginning of this year for their 2022 targets this doesn't let them off the hook am i right that's correct they still need to pay that and i believe the ministry already informed all the companies that were fined and they were giving um, the possibility to pay in installments so did your phone ring off the hook yesterday what did your clients and would-be clients (laughs) say to you yeah so I'll have to say some of our clients, they were quite pleased with the new development because it gives you space to breathe. It means that, you know, in in January, you only have to hit the 1%. You don't have to hit the 2% straight, which would mean that for the first half of the year, your fines might be lower if you are achieving the 1% target. But maybe you couldn't achieve the 2%, but you actually don't have to pay the fine on the 2%. So some of them were quite happy, but I would say... The other half of the clients is still in a in a limbo situation um, because even though they now just have to hit 1% in the first half, they're still having issues um, to attract and recruit uh, Emirati talent. Um, and they are still a bit, um, I would say, concerned that they won't be able to get uh, UAE nationals, whether, the, whether it's the 2% quota or the 1% quota. And it's not just fines, is it? It's also access to portals. It's the ability to issue new visas. Yeah, I think that was the most shocking part at the beginning of this year because everyone initially thought it's just the fine that's going to be imposed and you pay it and it's fine. Um, but actually what happened was that the ministry blocked your ability to issue new work permits until you achieve the emiratization quota. So you're kind of stuck. You cannot hire new, for example, expat stuff um, until you hire the required quota of UAE nationals. We've got one minute left with you, Lisa. What do companies need to be thinking about and doing now? 
Kontakten hier. I think what they actually need to think about is that they need to make a hiring plan. They actually need to have a strategy in place how to attract and how to be able to recruit uh, Emirati talent. Because I still believe that's the biggest issue. And unfortunately, the ministry's resolution and the ministry's practice, it doesn't contain a caveat for you trying to recruit, but you're just not able to get the numbers in. Um, so I think uh, HR staff um, and the relevant companies need to think about how to make their um, businesses more attractive um, to get UAE talent. Thank you so much for joining us on the Business Breakfast this morning. Lisa Maroud is an associate at the law firm Clyde & Co. She works in their employment department speaking to us this morning about those new biannual deadlines twice a year um, that companies will be measured to see if they are on track to hit their amortisation targets. Uh, thank you for the questions that we've got coming in. This is something that I'm sure we will be discussing all week. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We are talking Eid Travel this morning. Given the load factors, the volumes that we have seen on flights in the last couple of months, we're asking whether or not you need to be booking your Eid travel earlier this year, not just to get a decent price, but maybe even just to get a seat. Very pleased to be joined by Atish Thapa, who is the head of business and marketing at the travel company Clear Trip. Atish, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning and thanks for having me. What are you seeing in terms of Eid bookings at the moment? Are people booking earlier than usual? Yeah, this is the uh, this is something that we have noticed for the first time here that people are booking quite early. Usually, the uh, the travel season, which is Eid, we see a forty to forty five days in advance. People start booking in. Uh, we are talking about twenty first to twenty fourth of April, which is typically the Eid period. We have already started seeing searches f- right from early January, but now January end, we have started seeing the bookings as well, which is quite unusual. Uh, like you rightly said, people are not just aware, not just. F- uh, figuring that you know whether they will get a, a better price or not, but I think there's also a scarcity they might not get the seats. So it's easier said than done. It's it's a typical demand and supply. There's more demand than supply. Uh, probably we would want airline to add more capacity. However, uh, that's something which is unknown. So right now people are just trying to book the seats that's available. Are they right? Is there a, a worry that you won't be able to get on the flight that you want for Eid? Is there really a worry? I don't think there's a worry in terms of whether we will be able to get a seat or not. I'm sure there'll be a worry whether whether it'll be get the seat. The price that they're looking for. So usually the price difference between peak and non-peak would be, what, 70% to 2x, which is already we're seeing right now. So if your average fare were trending around 1,000, 1,500 for a certain destination, it's already trending at 3,000, 2,800, right? Which is the lowest in terms of the, we call it RBD, which is the lowest fare levels, which means that the fare is going to go higher than what you see right now. So probably people are scared that whether they will be able to get the fare uh, the the price point that they're looking at more than scarcity of not really getting the fare at all or seats at all. But you're saying that it's lack of capacity from from some airlines that's adding to this. Absolutely. So there is, there is definitely more demand uh, than the capacity that we have right now for certain destinations. So Eid is a period which is a short haul. So generally there are three types of traveler that we see. One is your Caucasus traveler, which is your three hours to four hours visa on arrival destinations. Second are slightly, uh, I would say, resort-oriented, Maldives, Seychelles, Kenya also for this region. And third are Schengen. 
Schengen, I'm sure you would have aware there mm -hmm. are there are issues with regards to not just the uh, the application, but also getting your appointment on time, right? So therefore, that everything has led up to, uh, I would say, advanced purchase, which is slightly higher than what we usually see. And we've just seen those rules change as regard to the Schengen visa. Does that put more pressure on the system? Uh, yeah, so the digitalization, if you're talking about, I think it's going to take some time. Uh, it's a great step towards the right direction. I'm sure everyone will be extremely happy to know about that. It definitely adds a little more co lesser cost to the customers, but at the same time, it is, it is a great saving of time. But I don't think we're going to see it next quarter or next six months. It is going to be at least a year more if I feel so. So I don't think there's any immediate release of pressure on, on Schengen right now. So where are people looking to travel? Are you seeing a change in the, uh, the destinations that people want to go to? I want to change in destination people want to go to. Typically, this is a three to four days holiday window. So you will usually see there another milk kind of Caucasus, Georgia, Armenia. One, it's visa on arrival. Second, it's pocket friendly. Third, I think, uh, you know, it, it has a lot of repeat traveler as well. Uh, Turkey was a new destination that we have seen. In fact, uh, from the last eight, nine months, we have seen a significant rise in booking for Turkey. We'll wait and watch and see how this situation will arrive. Uh, the new destination, uh, per se, we have seen Indonesia picking up. Uh, South Asia is, is something that we have seen. But again, smaller volume. But uh, those are pockets that we are seeing customers are now interested to, to explore beyond this uh, usual destination that we usually see on Eid. Is there any indication that customers are beginning to become price sensitive? We've spoken to airline bosses before who have said, look, we're not seeing demand destruction. We're, we're not seeing higher prices put people off travel. What are you seeing? So we have seen uh, a difference in terms of how people were searching before and now and booking. More than price sensitive, I think people are really cautious of the flexibility the airlines are offering. They really want more flexible fares. In fact, um, during pandemic, we launched a product called Easy Cancel. As you can rightly understand, Easy Cancel, you can cancel your services or your travel anytime you want. In fact, just a couple of hours before you get your boarding pass and you still get 90% of the, the amount refunded back to you to a certain amount, right? And we initially thought that's that's the need of the hour. Probably people are just going to use it because of uncertainty. Uh, we still see a very healthy attached date, which is quite encouraging, which means that people are looking not just the fare that they're looking at, but also flexibility in terms of how they would want to operate. So that's the shift that we have seen so far. If we look at inbound rather than outbound travel, are we starting to see the Chinese traveller coming back? Uh, not yet. So we haven't seen any uh, any major booking from China market yet. But just to give you a prospect in the inbound, so uh, Dubai, as we all know, has done incredibly well, you know, from an inbound perspective. So we're talking about people who are sitting in UAE using the UAE website, but booking flights and hotels for people who are coming to UAE. So which is which is what we call inbound. So usually our inbound used to be in the range of 20, 22% pre-pandemic. We have seen 29% of our inbound customers, which goes in line that there's most of, most of the travels are VFR visit friends and family. So they're calling their friends and family here because of you know, how Dubai has really performed during the pandemic days. So inbound travel has definitely gone to uh, play a significant role in the overall recovery for travel. What about corporate travel? What about business travel? So we don't do much of corporate. So uh, we will have a limited information about corporate. The one of the proxy that we can say is usually your front seats are being occupied by the corporate guys, right? So that's how typically your business class would be filled with. We still see a 56 to 57% recovery on business class tickets. So we would that's the indication that probably proper travel takes some more time to recover. While the market is already recovered to 76, 77%, that's the overall number I'm talking about. But the corporate travel for us, it's still sitting at 56%. If we look at the advanced booking window, the advanced <coughs> purchasing, 
outside of Eid, outside of a, a peak time, a school holiday when people know that they're going to be busy, are we seeing advanced times come back to what they were pre-pandemic? Yeah, yeah absolutely. So there are certain data points which are extremely important from a travel perspective for people like us to be confident that the travel is back. One is the advanced purchase window, which has definitely gone back to 2019 level. The, the second is one-way versus round-trip share. Uh, which is also an indication that people are more confident of you know, going to the destination. They're not just not leaving their job and going back to their home country. So we have seen all these metrics coming back to pre-pandemic levels. Before we let you go, we've got one minute left with you. We talk about higher ticket prices. Mm-hmm. How much ticket inflation are we actually seeing? How much are ticket prices really going up? Uh, so compared to 2019 versus 2022, we have seen roughly 16 to 17% on aggregated level. But that again uh, talks about because Europe opened slightly lower than what we anticipated. So that average ticket size there, uh, actually Europe actually increased by almost 70-80%. But uh, the 16 to 18% is what we have seen is the average increase in the price between 2019 and 2022. Where have we seen, to which destinations, just 30 seconds, the ticket price increased the most? Uh, I would say European destination we have seen, South Asia, we have seen an increase. Uh yeah, but but uh, India sectors has been robust. They've seen a single-digit increase, but rest of the destination we have seen twenty twenty-five percent increase. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, particularly armed with numbers, we love that. Atish Thapa is business and marketing head at ClearTrip, the travel agency, speaking to us this morning um, about the length of time that people are getting ahead of the game when it comes to booking Eid tickets. It does seem that people are booking Eid holidays earlier this year to make sure they get the flights and the price they want. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Chatting about chatbots now because Google and Microsoft are going head-to-head in what are being called the search wars or the chatbot wars. Overnight, Microsoft announced that Bing, its search engine, was going to go all AI with chatbots. Here's Satya Nadella. Let's hear from him now. He's the CEO of Microsoft talking about what the new chatbot-powered Bing means for search. We want to show you some of this innovation, starting with how it's going to reshape the largest software category on planet Earth, search. And it's a new day in search. It's a new paradigm for search. In fact, a race starts today in terms of what you can expect. And we're going to move. We're going to move fast. And for us, every day, we want to bring out new things. And most importantly, we want to have a lot of fun innovating again in search because it's high time. Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, it is high time. Looking at the market share of tech companies in search, Microsoft and Bing have 3%. Google has 93%. So they've got some catching up to do. Let's get the thoughts now of one expert on this. Kurt Mool joins us live. He is everyday AI strategic advisor at Data IQ, which is an artificial intelligence company based in Paris. Kurt, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Yes, good morning. My pleasure. What are your key takeaways from these two announcements over the past 24 hours? Google with Bard, their AI chatbot, Microsoft revamping Bing. 
Well, I think that it demonstrates the uh, the real potential that artificial intelligence has for transforming our economy, transforming our everyday lives. And I think that what we're seeing with the release of these chatbots now is that each company is doing it in its own way, meaning that the technology is actually quite influenced by the values and the decisions of those companies that are releasing them. And so it's been quite interesting to see OpenAI rushing through uh, the floodgates with uh, uh, ChatGPT initially. And now, of course, we see the, the giants, uh, Microsoft, who has a partnership with OpenAI, and then uh, Google following very quickly uh, behind it. So it's an extremely interesting time to be in this uh, in this field and frankly to be using this technology in any way that, uh, that you, all of us will be very soon. So both Satya Nadella of Microsoft and Sundar Pichai of Google Alphabet talking a good game. This is a new day for search. Let me play devil's advocate, if I can, per second, and be the cynic in the room and say, no, it's just a gimmick. Um, I think that uh, the, these initial applications might seem a little bit limited in some cases, right? Oh, great, I, I get an extra paragraph instead of just a, uh, a a blue link. But I think that over time, as these companies better understand the technology and set better controls about them, um, I do anticipate that we will see more, let's say, sophisticated applications. And there, I do think it will be quite transformative. But you're right, an extra paragraph of text, even if there is a pretty impressive technology behind it, for the end user, it's not much different initially, but I do think that there are big changes ahead. Okay, so talk me through one or two of those big changes. You're involved in the AI space with Data IQ. You're based in Paris. You're what's called an everyday AI strategic advisor. When you talk to your clients this week in Paris or Dubai or Seattle or wherever it may be, what kind of questions are they asking you and what kind of answers are you giving them when they ask the so what question? So I think that these uh, these technologies have clearly captured the, the public attention, and Didaiku's customers tend to be the largest customers in the world. You know, the uh, the, the uh, Forbes Global 2000 customers, um, and so what they are often looking at is ways in which they can harness the latest technology, but in some ways in a conservative way. Uh, of course, uh, many of them are in uh, highly regulated industries like banking and insurance, um, in airlines, uh, precision manufacturing uh, areas like that, and so they can't just go and grab a technology like this off of the shelf for a couple of reasons. First, uh, the technology itself can be difficult to use and they may not have that specialized expertise internally. Second, uh, it might be difficult to build into their existing enterprise uh, IT stack. And third, it may be actually difficult to uh, to then use that technology uh, in a way that they are confident about, uh, that they are sure that they can control. And that's where Dataiku really helps them with the ability to integrate those, uh, those technologies, um, allowing them to build those uh, latest advances from the world of artificial intelligence into their uh, into their everyday practices and that's exactly what we're hearing about uh, this next generation uh, these let's call them large language models is that they are now excited about the opportunities but also needing to make sure that they are deployed in a way which are controlled and which everyone can have trust in and that's the challenge that we're helping them solve there are a lot of questions about a lot of these cutting-edge technologies. We can talk about chatbots and artificial intelligence. Maybe a close cousin is the rise of the metaverse and cryptocurrencies. And we've had new regulations overnight in Dubai here on all of these things. How do you guide your clients through this? How do you separate the hype from the reality when it comes to a, a metaverse or a cryptocurrency or a chatbot? I think 
It's always a matter of just bringing it back to the core business of that uh, that organization. For businesses that are looking to make profit, looking to sh uh, return shareholder value, we need to come back to those principles. It's not. It's no longer a question of doing innovation for innovation's sake. Um, you know, it used to be if we you know roll back uh, seven, eight years, that indeed the uh, those very first generation of chatbots, uh, which were not very good, you know, that was that was how a company would show that it was doing AI. Uh, today, it's different, right? We we need to show ROI. We need to show that there is real business impact from these technologies. And certainly in the case of artificial intelligence, that has been well proved. That is uh, that's settled in some ways, that there is now this clear value that organizations can derive from uh, from that technology. Metaverse and crypto, those are uh, different categories of technology, um, which may have different applications. But for artificial intelligence, uh, it's clear that there is real business value. The challenge is making sure that businesses can use it safely uh, and can use it in a way which uh, they can be confident is going to return that value. Kurt, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for getting up early to speak to us from Paris. That's very kind of you. Kurt Muemmel is the Everyday AI Strategic Advisor at the organization Data IQ, based in Paris, France. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.